0: Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 22 on July 16th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guest on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Scott Kunkel, a paramedic, flight nurse, and an air medical executive who will be talking about updates on new developments in EMS and their impact on air medical services. I also check in with Edward Wimmer and PJ Rabis, the co-founder and director of marketing respectively for Road ID. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from episode 21 and cover some recent air medical transport news. Well, it has been a few weeks since the last podcast. Some of that time was by design, as this summer I have a number of trips, including my high school reunion in Michigan and various activities around my stepdaughter's wedding. I also had some scheduling issues with podcasts I had lined up and had to reschedule. The good thing is that I have some very interesting guests that will be on the podcast in the near future. I did receive some general comments about the podcast, which are always nice to hear. Nothing specifically, however, on episode 21. I continue to have problems with either Facebook or Hootsuite, the client I use to post to both Facebook and Twitter. Without getting into details, I have made some workarounds to continue to provide everyone the news feed for Air Medical Today, either through Twitter, Facebook, or simply by picking up the RSS feed. I have found a really nice add-on program for Facebook that solves the many issues such as posts being grouped and out of sequence and adds a whole lot of other very nice, helpful features. So far, it has worked very well for me, so I do recommend it. The add-on program name is called Better Facebook, and there is a link in the show notes. Remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file or note to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have any suggestions for future guests. As I have done in the past, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. Also, remember that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email or call me if it is not. I am always on the lookout for all the Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook, so it is easier for others to find you. The sponsorship page is up, and you can get to it by following the link on the homepage. To continue all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast, I need your financial support. So if you can, become a sponsor, and your company or name will be listed according to the level of support. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world since the last episode of the podcast. Well, unfortunately, we have had three crashes in the air medical community. I reported on the CareFlight crash on June 2nd in the last episode. Since then, there was a fixed-wing crash in Sydney, Australia on June 15th and another fixed-wing crash in Texas on July 3rd. The NTSB released the preliminary report on the CareFlight crash right after I published episode 21, and there was nothing substantially new from the reports in the media after the crash. In Australia, the pilot of a wing-away Air Piper PA-31 Mojave reported engine problems just before his twin-engine plane hit power lines outside a house and school in Canley Vale in Sydney, Australia's south side. Andrew Wilson, the 28-year-old pilot, and his only passenger, Catherine Shepard, a nurse in her 40s and a mother of four, were en route to Brisbane for a medical transfer. Wilson had reported difficulty maintaining altitude. Both were killed when the light plane crashed near the Canley Vale Primary School. Witnesses heard the light plane's engine struggling moments before it crashed. The plane had just taken off from Bankstown Airport and was not fitted with a cockpit voice or flight data recorder. It is the second fatal plane crash Wingaway has been involved with in the last two years. In 2008, the pilot of a freighter aircraft was killed when he crashed on takeoff into Botany Bay. In the federal parliament, Transport Minister Anthony Albanese offered his condolences to those affected by the plane crash. But the crash has already prompted calls for the federal government to reject a proposal to expand operation at Bankstown Airport. No one on the ground was injured when the plane crashed, although a man and his three children had a lucky escape when the aircraft exploded just 10 meters in front of them. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau preliminary report reveals the pilot turned the plane around somewhere around Richmond because it had stopped climbing and he had made it back to within six kilometers of Bankstown Airport, losing altitude the entire way before the plane hit a power pole. Controllers again told the pilot that Richmond Airport was close if he could not maintain altitude but the pilot said he was on a slow descent. It appeared to have rolled to the right after impact, then came to rest upside down in a driveway of a house before bursting into flames. In Texas, an air ambulance crashed shortly after takeoff from a West Texas airport on Sunday, July 3rd, killing all five people on board. The crash happened about 12.15 a.m., about a mile east of Alpine, Casparis Municipal Airport, about 200 miles southeast of El Paso. The twin engine Cessna 421 had just taken off for Midland International Airport in Midland when it went down in an open area, according to the FAA. The aircraft was carrying a patient and his wife to Midland, the Texas Department of Public Safety said. It identified the dead as 78 year old patient Guy Richard Folger of Alpine his 59-year-old wife, Mary Folger, two flight nurses, 49-year-old Sharon Faulkner of Fort Davis, 42-year-old Tracy Chambers of Alpine, and a 59-year-old pilot, Ted Caffarel of Beaumont. Caffarel was apparently trying to make an emergency landing when the plane hit a rut in the muddy field, overturned, and burned. Brewster County Sheriff Ronnie Dobson said his office received a 911 call from a witness who saw the plane crash. The sheriff said the aircraft was fully engulfed in flames when deputies arrived on the scene. Dobson said they tried to approach the plane to see if anyone was inside, but said the heat coming from the fire was too intense. There were several explosions at the scene after the aircraft had crashed, which may have been caused by either fuel or any oxygen tanks the aircraft may have been carrying. It was not immediately clear what caused the crash, but Dotson said it did not appear to be weather-related. The National Transportation Safety Board will lead the investigation, FAA spokesman Elizabeth Corey said. The crash is the first in West Texas of an air ambulance since March 21, 2004, when an Air Ambulance Bell 407 helicopter crashed, killing four people near Peyote. In May 2009, another O'Hara Flying Service aircraft was involved in an accident when their twin-engine Cessna 421B was substantially damaged during a forced landing following the loss of engine power shortly after takeoff near Alpine, Texas. The commercial pilot, sole occupant, was operating a non-EMS flight and received minor injuries during the forced landing. While the plane was being removed from the crash site, work still remained in the area, NTSB investigator-in-charge Jennifer Rohde said. Investigators were still conducting autopsies, toxicology reports, and interviews with everyone who works for the company that operated the plane. The plane left a three-quarter mile long ground scar on its impact, Rohde said. The impact damage means the NTSB must bring the plane's engines to a lab setting for final investigation. Rohde expects the investigation to take between eight and ten months, at which time a factual report will be released. After a review for another three months, a probable cause statement will be released. A plan to bring a new air ambulance to Picos came to a screeching halt after the plane crash as it was owned by the same company Picos officials had been considering. For the past few months, EMS officials say they have been in touch with O'Hara Flying Service about using a small fixed-wing plane to airlift patients to hospitals like in Odessa. City members say they will likely table any agreement as they want to give federal authorities time to figure out what happened. In healthcare reform news, House Democrats easily defeated a Republican attempt to roll back a major provision of the nation's new health care law requiring most people to get health insurance last month. Republicans tried to amend a small business tax bill with a provision that would have eliminated the mandate. The new health care law is under steady legal attack. Lawyers argued the first case to hit the courts, filed by the Attorney General of Virginia, which doesn't want to participate in the new federal health care plan. Additionally, more than a dozen other state challenges are in the pipeline. In a Richmond courtroom, Justice Department lawyers spent two hours squaring off against the state. The arguments represent the first stage of what could be a long fight. The federal law requires people to have health insurance to pay a penalty as a way of keeping down costs. A group of 20 states led by Florida is using even broader arguments to test the federal health care statute. The legal challenges center on two main ideas. First, that the federal government is engaging in a power grab and going far beyond its authority to direct the states to action. The conflict between states' rights and federal authority goes all the way back to the Civil War. Second, states argue that Congress is imposing an unfunded mandate by misusing the Commerce Clause to regulate financial activity. Florida's lawsuit is the next biggest case in line in the courts. The Virginia judge says he will rule on the first step in the state's lawsuit within a month. Early arguments in the bigger lawsuit filed by Florida and other states are scheduled for September. Eventually, Legal experts say this is the kind of dispute that's destined to wind up in the Supreme Court. In other news, the FAA is investigating whether a bird strike shattered a windshield on a CareFlight helicopter that was flying from Aberdeen to Fargo, North Dakota. The CareFlight helicopter from Avera St. Luke's Hospital made a safe emergency landing on June 14th at the Fargo airport. The pilot was treated for minor injuries. A paramedic, nurse, and patient also were on board and unhurt. The FAA is also investigating an incident on July 4th that involved the Miami Valley Hospital's CareFlight helicopter. According to Miami Valley Hospital spokesperson Nancy Thickle, the aircraft made an emergency landing early Sunday morning because it had lost a piece of plexiglass from the window while in flight. CareFlight was leaving Warren County and responding to an emergency, and the FAA said the plane landed at the Marine Air Park around 3.30 a.m. Thickle said there was no patient on board at the time. It was learned later that the pilot was the only person on board and was not injured. The CareFlight helicopter is operated by Air Methods, and records show it is owned by Miami Valley Hospital. The FAA is calling this an incident and says it will probably be weeks before there is a report done and is able to comment further. In response to four fatal accidents in a one-year period involving volunteer pilots on medical transport flights, the NTSB has recommended that the Air Care Alliance, or ACA, an umbrella organization for charitable flying groups, take action to address concerns over the verification of pilot currency, Passenger awareness of operating standards, the need for dissemination of safety guidance, information about best practices, and training material for pilots and organizations providing charitable medical transport flights. The NTSB is concerned that the pilots flying charitable medical flights receive no guidance, additional training, or oversight regarding aeronautical decision-making, proper pre-flight planning, or the risk of self induced pressure. A number of public flying organizations operate under Part 91. The Air Care Alliance unites many of these organizations so that they may learn from one another, work together on national policy and safety issues, and connect those in need with resources in their area. ACA President Lindy Kirkland said the alliance works with all volunteer pilot organizations, not just members of the ACA, To help improve the culture of safety and share best practices. The Alliance cannot require volunteer pilot organizations to take certain actions, but it has been working to establish best practices. The group has discussed the accidents cited in the NTSB recommendations along with improved safety guidelines in its last two national conferences and has solicited input from all known volunteer pilot groups. The Alliance also has been working with the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, or AOPA's, Air Safety Foundation, to develop an interactive online course that would address many of the NTSB's recommendations. The recommendations are in response to the NTSB's investigation of four fatal accidents involving volunteer pilots transporting patients between September 26, 2007 and August 12, 2008. Although the NTSB could not determine why these experienced pilots made the inappropriate decisions that led to the accidents, the pilots may have been subjected to self-induced pressure to start or complete the flight because of their passengers' serious medical condition, the NTSB said. If pilots are consciously aware of the self-induced pressure associated with this type of mission and have mechanisms to deal with it, the risk can be reduced, the board added. In a letter to key leaders in the U.S. House and Senate, seven EMS-related organizations, the Association of Emergency Medical Services, Advocates for Emergency Medical Services, the Emergency Nurses Association, the National Association of Emergency Medical Services Physicians, the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians, the National Association of State Emergency Medical Services Officials and the National Emergency Medical Services Management Association said they support legislation calling for D-block reallocation. While the Federal Communication Commission's National Broadband Plan proposes to provide public safety roaming and priority access on other commercial 700 megahertz networks for a fee, This proposal relies on untested technologies and new regulation that cannot ensure reliable and resilient communications capabilities to meet stringent public safety needs, the letter states. The signers therefore oppose the FCC's proposal to hold another commercial auction for the D-Block. Kevin McGinnis, the National Association of State EMS Officials, said getting all groups in the diverse EMS arena to agree on many things can be difficult, but he said the consensus support for D block reallocation was done in less than two weeks. McGinnis said the capabilities of remote diagnostic and treatment applications that paramedics can use or soon will be available continues to increase. But the effectiveness of those applications often can only be maximized if they can be shared in real time with a doctor who typically will be at another location. More high-bandwidth applications are on the way. The fear within the EMS community is that 10 MHz of Spectrum, currently licensed to the Public Safety Spectrum Trust, will not be enough to support these applications plus those supporting mission-critical applications for other first responders like fire and EMS in a given cell sector covering an incident scene. Assembly Bill 1660, which expands the definition of emergency aircraft flights for medical purposes, was signed into law by Governor Schwarzenegger of California in mid-June. The bill clarifies that an air ambulance flying under a lifeguard's call sign is not subject to a fine or penalty when departing an airport after hours to return to headquarters. Current law provides an exemption for civilian air ambulance aircraft operating under FAA lifeguard call sign to land after hours at certain airports without being subject to a fine. However, there is no provision providing emergency aircraft with the ability to depart airports once their mission has been completed. Thus, emergency aircraft which may need to return to base for the next emergency operation are faced with either remaining at the airport or risk paying a fine. AB 1616 was sponsored by the California Airport Council and supported by the California Medical Association, the California Pilots Association, and the California State Sheriffs Association. The measure passed both houses of the legislature unanimously. The FAA has announced that Medtron Aviation Incorporated of Dulles, Virginia, and Booz Allen Hamilton Incorporated of McLean, Virginia, received contracts as final part of the set of landmark awards to perform engineering work that will help transform and modernize the nation's airspace into the Next Generation Air Transport System, or NextGen for short. The $1.15 billion contract was awarded to Metron Aviation for 10 years is one of the largest ever awarded by the FAA to a small business. The two contracts are the last of six awarded under an umbrella portfolio called Systems Engineering 2020, or SE 2020. The work performed by Metron Aviation will complement work done by Boeing, General Dynamics, and ITT under SE 2020. 2020 contracts awarded last month. The firms will conduct large-scale demonstrations to see how next-gen concepts, procedures, and technologies can be integrated into the current system. The $711 million contract awarded to Booz Allen Hamilton for 10 years follows the first SE 2020 contract awarded to CSSI Incorporated in April. Both companies will evaluate emerging procedures and technologies and perform systems engineering to determine the best way to deploy the next-gen initiatives on a wide scale. The FAA has also reached an agreement with Georgia Tech to research how the increased sophistication on the flight deck under NextGen will affect flight crew members and controllers. The agreement is the first of several the FAA expects to announce in the coming months with universities that specialize in aviation-related human factors research. The research done by Georgia Tech will be shared with the public through presentations of research findings at national and international symposia in order to foster a better understanding of how NextGen will enhance the ability of pilots and controllers to effectively use new technologies and procedures. Olarlin Keith Falken Lee, 40, also admitted to embezzling $54,000 from Rosen Canada Pipeline Inspectors, where she worked after she resigned from STARS in October 2008. Falken Lee was authorized to write pre-signed checks intended to pay bills while at STARS, but made them payable to herself instead, according to court documents. Dr. Greg Powell, president and CEO of STARS, was quoted as saying that he feels confident that the money is well-protected and will not happen again. All of the missing money has been recovered. Bakken Lee had been promoted to senior accountant before resigning from Starge. She was soon hired by the pipeline company where she committed similar fraud. Bakken Lee from Nigeria was the subject of a newspaper article in August 2007 about immigrants adjusting to life in Canada while at the same time maintaining a strong bond to their homeland. Seven Eastern Cape New Zealand emergency services staff have been dismissed following a soccer jaunt at government expense, the Provisional Health Department said earlier this month. The alleged used a provincial air ambulance to fly to Confederations Cup match in June last year. The jaunt cost the province 182,000 rands and included the chief emergency operations officer in the province and senior staff from various centers. The department earlier this year terminated that air ambulance contract after uncovering irregularities totaling millions of rands. The department is now hiring air ambulance services on a month-to-month basis. The province head of emergency medical services, Shanks Marhan Haj, resigned in February after news of the jaunt emerged. The Scottish Air Ambulance Service, or SAS, has said it could make immediate changes to its air ambulance operation after residents in outlying islands criticized response times. Ambulance service bosses have been touring the country for several months to gauge public opinion of the performance of air ambulance as part of the consultation on the future of the service. The contract for emergency helicopter Operations is up in 2013, and the SAS has been asked for feedback on what can be improved before the service is put out to tender. The current setup has been criticized by residents of Orkney and Barra as they said they could wait hours for helicopters in a medical emergency. An SAS spokesman said the findings of the public consultation would be released in the coming weeks, and the public would have until the end of August to add more feedback. After making its debut in Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador, Canada, on June 4th, the air ambulance has been put into service and has been flying on a regular basis. The plane doesn't have a permanent home yet, but Jerome Kennedy, Minister of Health and Community Services, said arrangements have been made. He said the department has leased space at a hangar in Happy Valley Goose Bay for three months and there are plans and works for a long-term home. The pilots have been relocated to the community in order to fly on a regular basis, and Kennedy said arrangements have been made for them to travel back and forth from Happy Valley Goose Bay to St. Anthony to help their families with the transition. The plane is without a medical flight services team, and the minister expects one to be in place within the next six months because the department is recruiting for specialized medical personnel. Kennedy said that approximately 1,000 air ambulance flights occur in the province each year, with half of the flights being routine and not requiring a medical response team to fly. Yvonne Jones, leader of the liberal opposition, said she is not impressed with how provincial government handled the situation or how operations have been running so far. There was no doubt they needed to have an aircraft based on the ground in Labrador along with the medevac team, Mrs. Jones said. But the government's solution of just moving the aircraft out of St. Anthony to Happy Valley Goose Bay did not fix the problems. She said the best solution would have been to keep the service the same in St. John's, keep the plane in St. Anthony along with the medevac team, and station a plane and medevac team in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Air Medical Today will continue to follow this story as we have been for months now. MedFlight of Ohio struck a partnership with Community Emergency Medical Services of Ohio to form MedCare Ambulance on June 21st. The nonprofit organization is majority owned by MedFlight. MedCare isn't responding to 911 emergency calls, but is equipped to provide basic life support services such as emergency and non-emergency transportation, first aid administration, and advanced life support services, including cardiac monitoring. The venture is getting its start through the six-vehicle Franklin County fleet of community EMS, which will serve MedFlight's member hospitals and referral facilities. MedFlight, which receives sponsorship support from Akron General Medical Center, said it is kicking in lease space and equipment for MedCare along with dispatching space. MedFlight CEO Rod Crane said that MedCare is a result of three years of planning and serves a need for services beyond the critical care services that MedFlight provides through its helicopter and ground fleet, and that their consortium hospitals wanted to see a higher level of clinical oversight in the community for all patient transportation. After about two and a half hours of deliberation, a 12-person jury found on behalf of the Southeast Mississippi Air Ambulance District, or CMAD, which had sued Lamar County for paying just a portion of its annual membership subsidy after the county left the district during the 2008-2009 fiscal year. The district was awarded $61,833, or half of what the district maintained Lamar County still owed. The county also was successful in defending itself on two other counts during the two-day trial where Judge R.I. Pritchard III granted directed verdicts in its favor. Pritchard dismissed CMAD's request for reimbursement after it said it spent more than $11,000 repairing a 2007 Ford ground ambulance that had been leased to the county. He also rejected the district request for another in delayed damages or rental fees that the district said it lost because the county did not return the ambulance in a timely fashion. Pritchard said that because the district did not designate any of its witnesses as an expert, an exact determination of the cost of damage or its potential rental worth could not be determined under the rules of the court. Northwest MedStar has redeployed one of its air medical helicopters at Samaritan Healthcare and the fire station in Moses Lake, Washington, for 12 hours a day, 7 days per week. Terry Murphy, Samaritan's facility medical director, hopes that it will lead to a permanent base in Moses Lake, which is shared by many of the MedStar staff members. A McNary County, Tennessee airport will use a federal grant to build a hangar and living facilities for a Hospital Wing Air Ambulance Base scheduled to open this year. It will be the company's fourth base in the Mid-South. A $480,000 federal grant and another $8,200 grant will be used to build the new facility scheduled to be complete by September. Hospital Wing has signed a 15-year lease agreement with the airport to use the facility. Trina Hudson, who works with Hospital Wing in Oxford, will serve as the base manager once the facility opens. She said the company has hired pilots to staff the base and will be hiring additional medical crew positions. The Selmer base is about a 30-minute flight from Memphis, where Hospital Wing flies about 90% of its patients. The Arabac Life Team, another air ambulance service provider with several bases in West Tennessee, has had a base in Corinth, Mississippi, since 2005. The Corinth base is about a 10-minute flight from Selmer. A hospital wing brownsville base crew, pilot Doug Phillips, and flight nurses Cindy Parker and Misty Oakley-Brogdon were killed in March when their helicopter crashed in a wheat field east of Brownsville during a thunderstorm. It was the first fatal crash the company has had. The NTSB has not yet released a report on the cause of the crash. AeroVac Life Team has expanded its service area in Tennessee with the opening of a base in Savannah. The base is located at the savannah Hardin County Airport and is one of 11 bases in Tennessee. Program Director Glenn Moody will be in charge of all operations at the base, which will provide employment for 12 to 15 individuals and serve communities within a 70-mile radius of Savannah. Emergency Care Incorporated has relocated Lifestar to a new base at the Corey Lawrence Airport in Cory, Pennsylvania, where West Mifflin-Based Stat Medivac plans to move one of its helicopters to the Port Meadville Airport in Vernon Township by August 1st. The pairing of Emergency Care Lifestar and Stat Medivac's larger medical helicopter operation was launched in December 2009 when Stat Medivac won the bid to provide Lifestar with pilots, mechanics, and other associated services. As part of the union, directors of both operations agreed to move helicopters to more centrally located bases to better serve their large coverage areas. The North Colorado Medical Center, or NCMC, has added a helicopter service for expectant mothers who need emergency transportation. The service is based at NCMC in Greeley, with a second aircraft at the Erie Municipal Air Park in the southern part of Weld County. With the addition of specialized high-risk obstetrics crews... Pregnant patients at risk for complications to either the mother or fetus can be safely transported by helicopter to hospitals that specialize in maternal-fetal medicine, the release stated. North Colorado Medivac serves a 300-mile radius in northern Colorado, southern Wyoming, and western Nebraska with two Bell 407 helicopters. North Colorado Medivac added eight trained labor and delivery nurses, and Medical Director Dr. Shane Reeves to the staff, who is trained as a maternal-fetal medicine specialist. The high-risk flight crew includes the pilot, labor and delivery nurse, and critical care flight nurse. The flight program at NCMC was established 28 years ago and currently flies more than 1,500 missions per year. Mercy Medical Center will add another air ambulance this November. The second helicopter will be based in Knoxville, Iowa, officials said. There will be 12 new positions with seven positions as medical flight personnel and four pilots and a mechanic. The additional staff will rotate between the Mercy One bases in Des Moines and Knoxville. Mercy's helicopter, based in Des Moines, serves a 75-mile radius around the city of Des Moines, and the second helicopter will benefit towns to the south and east of the metro area. Officials said that in 2009, Mercy One received 1,220 requests for transport. Of those 433 came from the southeast Iowa corridor. Mercy One made 714 actual flights in 2009, with 264 of those coming from southeast Iowa. An air medical transport company that began service at Hagerstown, Maryland Regional Airport last fall has been in negotiations with West Virginia's air medical service to provide service out of Martinsburg, West Virginia, but no deal has been struck, according to Ed Rupert, Air Method's Senior Vice President for Community-Based Services. He said that they had been in discussions for several months regarding a joint relationship in the area. Air Methods Maryland has averaged 29 flights a month during the first six months of 2010, according to company data. 57% of flights were inter-facility transports and 43 being transports from the scene. Air Methods Corporation opened Air Methods Maryland in November 2009, and HealthNet Net Aeromedical Services was established in 1986. United Kingdom based private charter operator Sydney Aviation has based a Beechcraft King Air 200 and flight crew at Malta's Luga Airport dedicated to air ambulance work. They now have bases in London and Luga. The new emergency medical center at Maine Coast Memorial Hospital in Ellsworth, Maine, opened four months ago, and er earlier this month the hospital opened. The new center boasts a new Life Flight of Maine helicopter facility and two new trauma treatment areas. PHI Air Medical, that covers a large area of New Mexico, is shutting down one of its offices in Santa Fe. A PHI spokesman said the office is closing because of the rough economy. Though he did say the company still wants to expand by opening a Socorro office within the next 60 days. PHI officials did not reveal how many people lost their jobs when the Santa Fe office closed. Regional One has been named the state's EMS System of the Year by the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control. Last year, two of Region One's members were recognized as being the International Flight Nurse and International Flight Paramedic of the Year by the Air and Surface Transport Nurses Association and the International Association of Flight Paramedics. Regional One received the state award based on its involvement in the community and the education sessions it leads with schools, nurses, fire departments, and community groups. Hundreds of EMS services across South Carolina competed for the state title. Congratulations to Jim Mobley and his crew at Regional One. The Royal New Zealand Air Force is developing an aeromedical capability to enable patients to be transported. Safely around the world in its Boeing 757 aircraft. The aeromedical platform will provide care for a wide range of situations, from minor illness and injury to critical care. Due to its unique setup, it has the ability to complete a hospital to hospital transfer on a single stretcher. The aeromedical pallets were installed inside the Boeing 757 and test flown on June 14th. The aeromedical capability provides choice and flexibility to the New Zealand government's defense outposts, which could include disaster relief, contribution to military coalition, evacuation of injured New Zealand citizens in an area of sudden conflict, or in response to a terrorist attack. It's expected to be between 12 and 18 months before the program is fully operational. David Oakley has been appointed Charity Director of the London Air Ambulance a different title to be the one held by David Philpot but he said it is still the charity's most senior executive officer so effectively replacing Philpot having served as finance director for a number of organizations Oakley will be responsible for overseeing the implementation of decisions and to continue developing the service the charity declined to discuss the issues raised by Mr. Philpot before his departure, other than to say that his allegation that the organization was trading while technically insolvent and would not be able to afford a new helicopter when the current lease expires next year was entirely wrong. Shortly after Philpott was dismissed from his post last November, the Charity Commission provided some guidance to the trustees about certain financial and governance issues, but made no judgment about whether they were correct to dismiss Philpot. Philpott has since set himself up as a consultant. The Logan, Idaho Municipal Council voted unanimously in mid-June to ratify Kyle Lindsay as the city's new fire chief. Kyle, a 40-year-old from Blackfoot, Idaho, will head a restructured fire department comprising of more than 60 career firefighters. Before his commitment with the city of Logan, Kyle worked for Air Idaho OmniFlight as a flight paramedic. A team of three CareFlight representatives recently competed and won the Corporate Team Division of the United States Marine Corps' 6th Annual Mountain Warfare Training Challenge in Bridgeport, California. The race consists of a challenging 10K off-road run with obstacles such as a tire course, low crawl, five-foot wall climb, and tunnel crawl at the Marine Corps' Mountain Warfare Training Center in the Toyabe National Forest. The race started and ended at an elevation of 6,880 feet and participants climbed as high as 7,588 feet during the race. CareFlight team members included Tracy Hood, Alan Dabrowski, and Mike Garrett. Established in 1951 specifically to provide mountain and cold weather training for replacement personnel bound for Korea, the Mountain Warfare Training Center is one of the Marine Corps' most remote and isolated posts and one of its most difficult training grounds. Careflight is a shared program of Washu Medical Center, St. Mary's Regional Medical Center, and Northern Nevada Medical Center which provides emergency medical and rescue services to remote and rugged areas of northern Nevada and northeastern California from four bases. In 1986, CareFlight was placed under the authority of the Regional Emergency Medical Services Authority to create a comprehensive EMS system with fully integrated ground emergency medical services as well. Congratulations to the CareFlight team on this accomplishment. After nearly three years of work, the Lifestar helicopter and crew are calling Effingham County, Georgia home. The Emergency Air Ambulance Service has positioned its helicopter at the landing pad built for the program now owned by OmniFlight. Lifestar is sharing a 5,000-square-foot facility with the county EMS. EMS, which is moving out of the county administrative complex, will occupy 3,000 square feet, and Lifestar will take up residence in the remaining 2,000 square feet. Lifestar also will have a 2,500 square foot maintenance bay. There will be a landing pad for Lifestar's helicopter and another for a second helicopter. Before it was purchased by OmniFlight in September 2008, Lifestar was operated by Memorial Health University Center in Savannah. The air ambulance began flying in 1985. When the hospital needed the helicopter's landing pad and office for expansion, Lifestar moved its operations to the Savannah-Hilton Head International Airport. OmniFlight and the county have entered into a five-year lease. The University of Wisconsin Hospital MedFlight team members provided air medical support to the NASCAR Usiris 200 race on June 19th at the Elkhart Lake Road American Racetrack. It was the first ever NASCAR road race at Elkhart Lake and the first race event for UW MedFlight. The Dorset and Somerset Air Ambulance in the UK celebrated 10 years of service in June. The charity receives no funding from the government or the national lottery and relies solely on the generosity of the general public to help raise the 1.4 million pounds per year that it costs for operations. On average, the service is deployed three to four times per day, but in the summer that can increase up to eight times. Aravac Life Team is now the largest air medical company to complete the implementation of night vision technology at all its 92 bases in 14 states. Aravac Life Team President and CEO Seth Myers said the completion of the NVG implementation shows the commitment of Aravac Life Team's employees and management to safety. The company embraced this risk mitigation tool as another way to keep our employees and patients safe, Myers said. The two-and-a-half-year implementation process required a great deal of time in training, aircraft modification, and equipment purchases, which was more than $7 million. Initially, Airback Life Team contracted with Aviation Specialties Unlimited in Boise, Idaho to train crew members from eight of its bases before establishing its own FAA-approved NVG training program. Airback Life Team's training was done concurrently at three different locations throughout the central United States. The company's maintenance professionals also proved invaluable by reconfiguring the entire fleet of Bell 206 Long Ranger helicopters to meet the NVG compatibility requirements. Jeff Hall, a paramedic with Arabac Life Team, was recently recognized by the Board of Directors of the National Registry of EMTs for achieving 20 consecutive years as a National Registered EMT. By maintaining his National Registered status and completing regular continuing education courses, Hall is among the few elite EMTs with the most training in pre-hospital emergency medical care in the nation. Hall was nationally registered as an EMT BASIC and has been serving in the East Liverpool, Ohio area since 1988. Hall has worked for Lynn Life Team Ambulance and now works one 24-hour shift a week for Arabac Life Team based at the Columbiana County Airport. He is also a full-time employee at Von Roll WTI as its area safety manager. Three bags of clothing donations were stolen in broad daylight by a crook from outside the home of pensioner Ada King in the Chapel House area of Newcastle, England. The theft is the latest crime to hit the Air Ambulance and other charities trying to raise funds and thousands of bags of donations being stolen every year. In 2007, the Great North Air Ambulance was reported to have had between 750 and 1,000 of its bags stolen each week. In December last year, two men were charged after they were caught in a van full of clothes left out by families as donations to the region's air ambulance. A spokesperson for Great North Air Ambulance said, "We ask the public to be vigilant. All Great North Air ambulance staff wear high visibility jackets and ID badges." In a related story, Jason Wolfe was jailed for 15 weeks after pleading guilty to seven counts of fraud and one of attempted theft. He had knocked on the doors claiming to be raising money for the Great North Air Ambulance, posing as a war hero, and claimed to be raising money on a sponsored walk. When the 48-year-old was arrested, he insisted his charity walk was genuine. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. In the first response section of the podcast today, I will be talking to Edward Wimmer and PJ Rabbis, the co-founder and director of marketing, respectively, for Road ID. This recording was done as part of the Kansas Cyclist podcast, which I do in collaboration with Randy Reza, the webmaster for the kansascyclist.com website. I wanted to play a portion because Edward and PJ are trying to get the word out to EMS agencies about looking for the Road ID identification on athletes that they may need to treat. Road ID provides important health and emergency information, and I have personally been a user and promoter of their product for two years now. Edward Wimmer is the 32-year-old co-founder of Road ID, which was started with his father, Mike Wimmer, out of his dad's basement. As the de facto CEO of Road ID, he oversees all of the day-to-day operations of the company while focusing on their long-range initiatives and budgeting. P.J. Rabbis is the 37-year-old director of marketing and strategic partnerships at Road ID. He spends the majority of his time managing the advertising and PR agencies as the company identifies new opportunities for growth overseeing the company's social media presence, and working with their brand ambassadors. Prior to coming to Road ID, he worked for a sports marketing agency as accounts director, where he was responsible for the oversight and execution of all client sponsorship and marketing programs. Welcome to the podcast, Edward and PJ. Thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast.
1: Well, we appreciate you inviting us on. It's good to be here yeah thank you.
0: Well, well, first off, Edward, explain what Road ID is and what inspired you to develop this product?
1: Well, I guess in a nutshell, Road ID is safety identification for for athletes uh, it's a, It's an ID you can wear on your wrist, or around your neck, on your shoe, or around your ankle that communicates who you are uh and your emergency contact numbers could could also include your your health insurance information social security uh type information uh medical history, and so forth and the purpose of, of all that data is to communicate that first responders in an accident situation uh, the uh The concept behind road i d really began uh in the in the fall of nineteen ninety nine when I was training for a marathon. Uh, I was a senior year. I was a senior in college, and my father communicated to me via telephone one day that I should be wearing some form of ID while logging all these miles. His concern was, "What if you have an accident? How am I, as your father, going to know that something happened to you?" Hmm. I was in a different city, uh, away from home, and and uh, he wanted to know if I had an accident. And at the uh, at the right age of 21, I, I kind of dismissed my father's concern of that. That a Uh, of of an overprotective father and went about my marathon training without carrying ID. And I think my mindset changed pretty rapidly one day when I was up for a a long run on a Saturday on a country road and was almost clobbered by a a big black pickup truck coming at me at about 50 miles an hour. Luckily, I avoided being hit but ended up in a ditch uh, thinking to myself, you know, oh oh man, what would have happened had I been hit by that, uh, that car, and I, and I thought back to my conversation with my father, and, and without ID, I could end up in the hospital unconscious, unidentified, nobody would have known where I was. it wouldn't know how to access medical records, they wouldn't know how to uh, uh, contact uh, my family members, my friends, and at a point when I could conceivably be fighting for my life, nobody, I wouldn't have anybody by my side, and that kind of scared me. So it wasn't too long after that that he and I got together and decided that, uh, that somebody should make uh, make ID for active people, and that we should be that somebody. So we we launched uh, launched Road ID later that year in 1999 from from his base. Well,
0: wow. that's uh, quite a story. So it really uh, is a a very personal one. Of course, you're talking to. Uh, Mr. Compulsive here. I actually wear my Road ID. I'm on my second one uh, and, and love the product, but I, I wear it all the time. I, I traveled a lot with my previous job, and I thought, you know, geez, I've got this. This is a nice thing to have. And, uh, you know, it, it's not always just for cycling, but I knew I always had it on if if it was needed, kind of like having a, a medical bracelet on, on almost.
1: Yeah, it's, uh we find a lot of our customers wearing other IDs all the time. You know, it, it, it starts maybe they start maybe putting it on when they head out for a run or a bike ride, but then they, they realize that it's comfortable and and some of our some of our products are quite stylish as well. And they just figure, well, you know, if I wear it when I run uh, or, or ride, why not wear it all the time? You know, accidents can occur at any time, anywhere. Uh, they're you know they're always expected, and, and it's important to have your your ID. Uh, on you, whether you're riding a bike or mowing a lawn, yeah. taking a dog for a walk.
0: Exactly. Had there been some stories uh, where the road ID has really met the difference between life and death for someone and um, getting emergency personnel there?
1: Uh, absolutely. And, and some of those stories can be found on our website. We have a, a whole slew of uh, testimonials uh, so if you're on our website, in the left-hand side of the page in the navigation, you'll see a link to testimonials. And when you click there, you're just going to see story after story. Uh, these are submitted by our customers about how Road ID made a difference in their life. And, and they, really, they, you know, they, they certainly uh, reigned in severity, if you will, from uh, the, the type of accident where somebody gets hit by a car, and they're, they're conscious and lucid, but they might be in pain and they, they don't want to answer the barrage of questions being asked of them by, by the first responders or at the hospital. So they just hold up their, their road ID and it takes care of everything for them. Whether it's the original version or the interactive version, it, it really does provide, uh, uh, provide the EMTs with the information that they're looking for. Um, then uh, the, the other side of that scale would be uh, and there's several stories like this on our on our website where a, a guy has an accident. Uh, and I'm thinking of one in particular where he crashes his bike uh, going going downhill. Uh, has has no recollection of the accident. Uh, first thing he remembers is being in a uh, post first thing he remembers being, uh, post accident is being in a helicopter airlifted to the hospital, mm-hmm. but not communicating to first responders at all. And when he gets to the hospital, finds his wife, uh, wife there before uh, she was able to arrive before he even got there, only because he was wearing his Road ID. So it's, it's those type of stories that we hear almost on a daily basis around here. And it really is inspiring uh, to receive all the, and it's most, they mostly come in via email or testimonials, but it's inspiring to receive these on a nearly daily basis, these stories about how Road ID really has made a difference. And I, I think it, uh, it it serves to motivate us as a company. I mentioned earlier how, you know, to us, it's not about the bottom line. It's about the education, uh, getting people to understand. And, and these stories that come in reinforce that that, uh, that motivation uh, almost daily.
0: And, and the other thing that you're trying to, to reach out to, and, of course, I've spent my career in kind of the EMS community, specifically the air medical Part of that, but you're trying to reach out to the EMS community and educate them about road IDs and maybe where to look for them. Uh, what specifically are you doing uh, to reach out to pre-hospital providers?
1: Well, Peter can better uh, speak to to what we are uh, we're doing uh, in our outreach. I will say that, and you know uh, know this that uh, as part of first responders training uh, they are trained to look for ID i right. think uh, I think so you know the companies like medical alert uh, have paved the way uh, for that a long time ago so we um we, but w- what we want to do is reinforce in the medical community uh, the fact that they they need to they need to be looking for identification such as road ID um and I, I think PJ can speak to about, speak to some of the things that we're we're doing now and we'll be doing in the future.
2: Yeah, I'll just, I'll just jump in quickly on that and uh, it, um, and say that you know we're doing some of the traditional things that I think a lot of companies uh, have done in the past, but um, you know with the advent of social media, we've been able to take advantage of of that uh, of that arena as well. And you know us being on the show, I, I think is is one example of that uh, and reaching out to our Our following on Twitter and Facebook, and and simply just asking, uh, uh, simply stating, you know, we're we're looking to outreach to the EMT first responder community, and if you'd like to help, you know, reach out to us and let us know. And I and I believe that that was how we we engage with each other, and and as a result, we're you know we're doing things like getting on podcasts or talking to different media, and and our PR agency is is actively um, uh, doing an outreach campaign to various. Uh, EMS-related uh, magazines and websites, such as GEMS or EMS Magazine, and, and we're looking to develop and forge relationships and, and partnerships with, uh, with those same types of organizations. We're also identifying um, uh, uh, different shows that we can go to um, to attend uh, in the EMS world and, um, as well as your traditional advertising Um, creating marketing materials that can be distributed to our customers and then passed along from there. Um, And then, you know, at the the education level, working with some EMS professionals that we've created relationships with to integrate Road ID into the curriculum and the education process, whether it be the first-time education process, becoming a first responder or an EMT, as well as the continuing education. And, you know, Edward touched on it with medical alert, and I think that's that's likely been used as an example of something that uh, a person may be using or wearing. And uh, we'd like Road ID to become, you know, that example during that education process where if you're, you know, if you are if you come upon a cyclist, runner, triathlete, they may, uh, may be wearing identification and, and this is what it could look like and it would be a Road ID. So, you know, we've got about five or six different um, uh, things that we're doing um and none of them, I, I think, are going to be the silver or the magic bullet. But, um, uh, you know, I think cumulatively over the next 12, 12 months, um, you know, we're hoping to make some, some good inroads and in continuing to educate people about uh, not only the importance of wearing it, but um, that, we're, that a lot of people are, in fact, wearing it.
1: We think the EMT training is is uh, probably pretty good and as, uh, as a testament to that, you know, the number of testimonials that we receive. Um, we wouldn't have uh all the testimonials or success stories if you will, if it weren't for uh you know, the good folks in the uh, in the first responder community locating uh locating road IDs and using them in, in emerging situations. And I think it's but uh but we know uh that the you know, that that we wanna we wanna further that education. Um the last thing we would want ever wanna see is uh one of our customers uh, who had a road ID on and an EMT not use it in an emergency situation.
0: Right. Guys, thanks again for your time and in sharing this important personal safety information.
1: Well, thanks for having us on today. We really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Take care.
0: Today I am interviewing Scott Kunkel, a paramedic flight nurse, and an air medical executive who will be talking about updates on new developments in EMS and their impact on air medical services. Scott has been involved in transport medicine for the past 23 years and has worked for a variety of organizations in both clinical and leadership positions. His experience includes pre-hospital ALS, critical care transport, and rotor wing and fixed wing air medical transport. Scott holds an MBA with a concentration in healthcare administration and a bachelor's of science degree. He is a certified medical transport executive, certified flight registered nurse, and flight paramedic certified. Scott is currently employed with air medical organizations in Ohio and Michigan. He is a site surveyor for the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems and maintains memberships in the American College of Healthcare Executives the Society for Healthcare Strategy and Market Development, through the American Hospital Association, and a number of clinical associations. Scott is an item writer for the Board of Critical Care Transport Paramedic Certification and is a member of the Advisory Board for RSQ 911 Solutions, LLC, an organization that is dedicated to improving service and operational performance of critical care transport providers. Scott hails from Toledo, Ohio, and currently is residing in Medina, Ohio. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. It's great to have you on the show, and I do apologize for all my scheduling problems for this episode. Well, it's great to be
3: talking to you, Ed. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, uh, you're going to be a regular contributor to the show and talking about EMS in general. So we wanted to set up for this interview uh, some background on the relationships between air medical uh, agencies and programs and and EMS. So Scott I I guess the first question would be why is it important for an air medical program to have a close working relationship with EMS agencies in their service area?
3: Well primarily when you think about um, what we do, um, none of us does anything in isolation. And I think, you know, the, the end product of, of the care that's delivered to the patient really is all about collaboration. And the more contact that Air Medical Services can have with, from, with EMS agencies really promotes that collaboration um, because it's, it's not an egocentric world. It's not all about what we do in Air Medical. It's about delivering the patient and faciliti- facilitating the care of the patient. And the uh, the impetus for what happens on a scene call and the ideas in the um, format of uh, what we actually accomplish really may be driven a lot more by EMS. So they need to be a partner in, in how operations take place at at scene calls or at um, calls that involve rendezvous at airports or different things like that, because they hold the expertise in that area and I really think there 's a lot to be gained there, obviously, there are uh, another uh, a number of other you know avenues to that that we can um, really benefit from um, as far as coordination of training and um, interagency training and um, facilitation of disaster response. There's just a host of things, but I think the whole theme of collaboration is is really the biggest one.
0: Mm-hmm. And Scott, you've worked in all these environments, uh, having been a, uh, a ground EMS para- paramedic, a, a flight nurse, and of course in, in EMS or uh, air medical administration. What are the specific benefits to the air medical program with this collaboration with the EMS agencies?
3: You know, I think the the specific benefits really lead back to, um, you know, to speak generally and then to go in a little bit more specifics, are that we're delivering a better end product from the patient's standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, I was listening, I was re-listening to the podcast that you did with Steve Johnson talking about education and training, and I mean, Steve has a ton of expertise in that area. And... I think a lot of times as specific agencies, we build very robust education programs and training programs, and, and we work on those things. Um, one of the things that we have to remember to do is do some interagency training and education, um, and, and the training specifically as far as rehearsing um, different scenarios that occur um in in the course of doing business, or in the course of doing what we do, because a lot of th- a lot of times we take those things for granted as processes that just work ad lib, rather than trying to engineer the process of, uh, you know, I know some programs that um, very specifically go out and work with their referring EMS agencies to practice um, the hot loading drill, or if they're going to hot load patients, they work with um, their referring. Um, ems agencies on on how that transpires on a step-by-step wise fashion as you would see like a nascar pit crew do so when it actually comes to doing this on a live scene that everybody is well coordinated and getting everybody on the same page of music there's probably a lot to be gained in that in that fashion Um, and and in the end those things are going to be the things where we can through quality management programs we can shave off minutes and be more of a a definitive answer to to what our specific
0: patients' needs are, and, and then back to your point of that's really benefiting the patient. Correct, it, it, it
3: is. Yeah. And, and in the end, and I find a lot of what we do. Um, sometimes we get we get sub focused on we're trying to achieve this or we're trying to achieve that. We forget that a lot of what we're focused on a day to day basis goes back to the core of. Patient care and the uh, and the core of doing things um, safely to get the patient to where they need to be. Um, you know there are there are competing um, priorities for our time and attention, and sometimes we get focused on those other goals and needs, and we forget about what the true core of our business is.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there some specific uh, clinical things that you work on with EMS agencies too? Um, you know, a, a type of injury, etc., that that could could be practiced.
3: Well, I you know I've spent a lot of different times visiting other programs in in working with other programs with different hats on my head, but I, I think that a lot of times it's agency specific or region specific, but. There are just a number of um, positive things that are going on out there. There are are advances being made in in the timeliness and identification of of strokes and stroke care. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of that is the the, the big new um, emphasis and the push on that. And really, when you go back and you look at something like the American Heart Association chain of survival, in order to be successful in caring for a time-dependent patient, it takes strength in all those specific chains, which not only includes a strong EMS service and a strong air medical service and um, great care at the end of destination, but it also um, encompasses um, a really robust community interface where you're making sure that people are recognizing signs and symptoms and calling early. So to get back to the core of your question, on a region-by-region basis, I think there are Are a number of things that are being done intuitively out there. A lot of programs are, and Steve mentioned this in the podcast that you did with him, a lot of programs are are taking their human patient simulators out to the region Mm -hmm. and they're reproducing case reviews. So, um, a case that may be an anomalous case that you may have seen, you know, any group of uh, providers only sees, you know, once every three years. Now can that case can be reproduced over and over and over again for a region, and, and we can go here is what the unique caveats to a patient with osteogenesis imperfecta has when they're involved in a, a significant blunt trauma, blunt force trauma accident. Um, so it gives you the opportunity, that technology gives you the opportunity to share that with the people that you partner with in the community. And the nature of the fact that it, an EMS um, organization may be smaller and have not as much funding. They can benefit by the economies of scale that air medical programs have in, in bringing those patient simulators out and doing the, the specific education at their site right. or having, a, having sort of a site in between.
0: It, and I think one of the other things, because I wanted to talk about the benefits to an EMS agency, too, and that's certainly one of them, but but in finishing on a benefit to an air medical program, I think one of the big ones, too, that uh, you didn't mention was uh, LZ training, and especially on scene-type flights.
3: Yeah, I think the, the LZ training continues to evolve mm-hmm. to a point where... We're in third or fourth generation of um, of a product that involves LZ. One of the things that is being that I applaud that's being done in Ohio is the um, and I won't, I won't try to reproduce the acronym for the state organization for critical care transport providers um, that. All the state EMS or all the state air medical programs are involved in. They've actually produced a generic LZ program so that um, as an EMS provider and you have three or four different air medical services that overlap your your coverage area and you may get X program on one day and Y program on on the other day and Z program on the, the following week because they happen to be the closest aircraft on that day. The LZ information is um, generic enough that it makes landing zones safe for all types of aircraft and all types of operations that we do. And I think that's probably a better product um, at the end point at the EMS organization because they're not having to remember the difference between, you know, a... EC-135 and Augusta 109E, they're getting uh, a generic amount of information that that covers all airframes and covers safety for um, all providers in the state. And I think those things are things to be applauded, and that goes back to the whole theme of collaboration again.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that because that's really the the organizations uh, or the, the air medical programs in a state working together to standardize that so it makes it easier for the EMS agencies, because a lot of it is. I mean, quite frankly, if you look at the the amount of, uh, you know, dimensions and stuff to set up an ALZ, looking for wires, uh, you know, wind direction, trees, et cetera, is fairly similar. So that's a good point. Let's go into Scott the specific benefits to an EMS agency, then for for this collaboration. Well, I think that
3: there you have a number of very talented and experienced people out there um, in the EMS world that are that are working, and um, they have a lot to offer us. But in in terms of air medical services offering EMS something, I think. We sort of bring a, a larger n or a larger um, group of patient experiences um, through education, um, through reproductions with the human patient simulator. We can bring a, a fair degree of expertise based on a, a larger number of critical patients that are seen. Because in any any one area or any one region, you know, you may only see, you know, two to three significant acute myocardial infarctions in one month. But as an air medical program that aggregately covers a significant more amount of territory, they may have experience dealing with a hundred acute myocardial infarctions in one month. So from a case presentation standpoint, there's probably sort of a, a more aggregate knowledge base based on that whole economies of scale model to to take that information out and share expertise based on dealing with a wider range of a specific type of patient. Um, I think, um, being able to, um, offer some unique assistance, um, in, um, uh, remote locations, um, as far as bringing in resources or coming into a large, um, uh, disaster scene and, and flying in resources or doing, um, uh, disaster level triage; those are things that we don't necessarily think about on a day-to-day basis. Is the, the the benefits that air medical brings to um, to EMS? Um, one of the amazing things that that I've been witness to that's been done in the state of Michigan is, uh, and Bill Fails, one of the medical directors up in in Region Five in the Kalamazoo County area, they've instituted a what's called a med run program, where in a large disaster scenario whether it be a biological or or chemical-based nerve agent attack, there are um, push packs that are deployed throughout the air medical programs um, throughout the state, and um, within an hour to an hour and 30 minutes in any place in the state of Michigan, um, one of the air medical services, the closest air medical service, um, all working in conjunction, can provide this litter push pack full of, Specific medications that are needed based on the type of incident, and it's and it's a well-coordinated effort, and it's really taken everybody to provide that. And based on that, you um, you don't have to have stockpiles in multiple different regions to have the same same impact or same effect. And I think that's one of the places that we definitely can bridge the gap.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. So it's really. That kind of general education, clinical knowledge, furthering clinical knowledge, because you can bring resources out as you said to remote areas. I think one of the other things too that EMS agencies tend to look for is is feedback, and I think that's what you're talking about. You know, how did we do on a specific case? And of course, with with uh, HIPAA and risk management, especially on the hospital-based programs, it's a lot harder to get that feedback, but these are kind of ways to provide it indirectly, correct?
3: That's true. And, you know, providing it in an aggregate fashion is a, play, is a way that we provide it indirectly. But I've seen, you know, I think it's probably, you know, a little bit harder for the um, community-based um, models that are not specifically connected with the hospital system to get follow-up information. But I've seen even the community-based models really... Um, by taking a little bit extra time when they deliver a patient to a cath lab, for instance, by watching the initial few pictures of the uh, of a cardiac cath or, or getting the, the the initial results while they're putting their equipment back together, um, they're able to still deliver some of that follow up information that wouldn't normally be available to EMS, and, and those things are important because it you know it helps EMS organizations um, not only. Um, Legitimize uh, their uh, thoughts on uh, on their initial assessment, but it also gives them feedback on you know you know we saw this on the pre hospital twelve lead EKG and and actually that corresponds to the fact that this this patient in the cath lab had a uh, uh, a circumflex artery occlusion. So they can correlate the information that that they saw that with new things that, that have been developing out in EMS with the end product that is diagnosed in the cath lab. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. How often should an air medical program be in contact with the the EMS agencies in their service area? Well, I think, you know, I I think that you should,
3: there should be an open line of communication. And a a lot of that stems to, um, delegating out um, authority or um, um, permission, if you will, for lack of a better word, for um, air medical programs that have outlying bases to really develop integral relationships with the EMS providers in their area. So it's not like you're just contacting these agencies on a month by month basis, but they know that they have uh, a relationship with the, the, the providers in their area, the base in their area. Where anytime they have questions, they they have a number or a contact person that they call, and that um, that the information is passed along um, up to program administration. And anything that uh, needs um, more of a a, um, a service wide um, intervention, anything that can be improved, um, can be inter- uh, um, that information can get to uh,
0: um,
3: the administration rather quickly.
0: Right. So you're basically saying it, you know, it depends. You want to have that open line of communication. What have you seen though, Scott, in your experience as, as the most effective ways for an aeromedical program to interface with their referring EMS agencies?
3: Well, um, probably the most obvious one that comes to my mind to start with, and, and I'm a little bit partial to it because I of course I am on the advisory board of RSQ nine one one. Um solutions, um, mm-hmm. which is Bill Gerard's LLC that um, focuses on a um, web-based format for getting feedback from not only EMS providers but from patients and referring facilities and re- receiving facilities um, when we had the last thing that there seemed to be available to air medical services as far as um, feedback from customers was press and it just didn't seem to have the immediate the, the data that you got back wasn't as immediate as you can with a web-based solution and and um i know that you've had bill on the um the podcast already but um having that getting that information um fed back to the agency as quickly as possible and Knowing when there is a problem and, and being able to adjust, uh, address a problem or a concern as quickly as possible is key. Because I find that you know, being able to address any issue that comes up or concern or just a general question, the earlier that you can address that, the less life of it own, life of itself that it builds. So in the long run, being able to do some early inter- education or some early um, feedback on customer service gives you the opportunity to prevent prevent something from becoming blown out of proportion or a big rumor or a big misunderstanding because the exchange of information wasn't there.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I had uh, Bill for our listeners on episode two, so if you want to learn a little bit more about uh, Rescue 911, and I was equally impressed because in, in my experience with especially the Press gainy, the the feedback was always... So late, uh, and and then especially for the EMS agencies or referring hospitals and physicians, it would be kind of a generic thing, and they might be thinking about that particular transport. And I think what's nice about bills programs is that you get the immediate feedback on that particular transport, uh, and then as you said, it allows you that uh, immediate feedback. Back or immediate contact to uh, find out exactly what the problem was if that was an issue from the air medical program or an issue uh, from the EMS agencies that kind of as you said before creates that open line of communication the, the, go ahead
3: the, the other thing I'd like to say about interfacing with EMA, EMS agencies is that, that I think that we've as as a community of air medical services we've probably gotten a lot better at that based on the fact that we have, you know, relative to when Air Medical first started, we have more of a, a regional base strategy where you're outbasing crews, and that gives crews an opportunity to develop closer relationships with the, the departments that they work with and the EMS agencies that, that they work with on more of a routine basis. You know, when you're located in a, in a larger metropolitan area and you service Eight hundred square miles and fifty to seventy agencies. It's it's a lot harder to stay in contact with those rather than when you have the out-based strategy. So I think that's probably been an evolution in our favor for for the air medical community as well.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. What about the use of uh, outreach coordinators and? Uh, in- Folks that maybe aren't specifically on the transport team—they may transport, but part of their job or all of their job is to to be going out and visiting agencies.
3: I, you know, I think the outreach coordinators serve a specific pur- purpose, but they're they're one piece in, in the larger puzzle. Yeah, they actually they're a, they're able to collect a larger portion of aggregate data, whether they're doing focus groups or they're reviewing the surveys or they're reviewing the results that come back um, through NRSQ-type database, they're able to sort of, you know, build an entire picture of uh, a program's um, presence out in the community, Um, but to address specific um, flight-by-flight patient care issues, I think the having a strong interface at the provider level, the flight paramedic, the flight nurse, the flight respiratory therapist, their relationship with the EMTs, the paramedics, the fire station chiefs, all those things, being able to provide that more intimate feedback on what happened on a particular scene, you know, there's a role for both those, um, both those groups and both those people, both the the, the outreach coordinator who will coordinate things on more of an aggregate level and almost sometimes more of a thematic level, as far as, you know, knowing what what type of education is desired out there to the um, face-to-face um, knowledge transparency that you get from somebody that you've developed a long-term relationship with. Right. And I think that's that's hard to beat is, that there's a trust that's developed when you have um, providers that are local to your area.
0: So, what you're really saying is it's a multi pronged approach. There's no silver bullet, one thing. I mean, you've got to be actively involved. I think the other thing uh, that I've seen of a lot of uh, programs is that they are active in the regional EMS you know meetings, associations, so that there's a presence of the air medical programs where the, the EMS agencies uh, attend too.
3: Sure, exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, Scott, let's take a little different track on that. What about in areas uh, where there are competitors? How does that change things, or does it?
3: I think that um, your relationship or anybody's relationship with um, EMS organizations in a competitive environment has to be one of, I I guess the theme has to be the high road. And And to go back and to remember the core of what we're all there for and and the the patient as the focus. And, you know, what, what if that was, you know, your son or daughter or your grandmother, um, you know, and part of taking the high road means, you know, if there is a capable service that's closer to a scene response is that you're going to refer that call and do what's right for the patient. Um, the, um, and i think that those are things that are that need to be transparent in your relationship with um ems organizations that you do um uh, demonstrate that you have a model that's differentiated from um the competitors in their area but that you don't you promote your model but you don't downplay their models in the same in in the same conversation um because there are organizations out there that that are providing um, very effective care and um, good organizational models, although they may be doing it a little different way. And program philosophy is different from crew configuration to type of aircraft to how they base their aircraft to whether they're IFR or VFR. And all those topics are are, are generally up for debate. But I think we really have to take the high road and remember what's best for the patient on an individual situation. And if we can project that honestly and with a fair degree of transparency, then I I think outlying EMS organizations recognize that and recognize the genuineness associated with that. Mm -hmm. I was involved in a um, a really badly burned scene flight patient uh, back in the winter months and the um, EMS organization that called us, there was a, there was a provider that was closer, but they were, they happened to be on the other side of weather. So we were, we were able to get in and we weren't. And so when I went back and gave feedback, I said, you know, this was a really great flight. Um, I really, we really appreciated interacting with the organization, but we know that you have a a, a provider that's a lot closer than us. and, And we value that you have a relationship with that provider. We're just glad that we can help anytime that they're not available or, You need multiple aircraft. And I think they appreciate that genuineness. Because when I'm on the other end, if I'm working as a field paramedic or if I'm working out in EMS, that's what I'm looking for. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I think those are very good points. And it it goes back to your collaboration with the other air medical programs, too, because, you know, if they get mixed messages and, uh, you know, on types of services or things that are available, uh, that makes it hard for them, too. I guess saying that, however, and and taking the high road, how do you, in a positive way, differentiate yourself? And let's say, let's take first as a traditional hospital-based program or hospital-based consortium.
3: Well, you have to you have to bring um, the the list or the description of of what makes you. Differentiated and present that in a positive light. And just because you're presenting reasons that you're differentiated doesn't mean that you're knocking another model. Right. It's you're just, you know, a hospital based provider may have more ability to um, train people on um, biomedical equipment. So it may be easier, um, and this is an example, it may be easier for a hospital based provider to institute something. Um, like a new piece of biomedical equipment, because they have a back end that allows them to have their patients use that piece of biomedical equipment in the e d one of the things i 'm thinking of is ultrasound it hasn 't um, it's it 's starting to become a little bit more mainstream, but I think from a hospital based provider perspective, a lot of times for their crew members to get in and be able to use that. Um, pieces of equipment, the ultrasound, in the hospital and um, have clinical experience with it and have a, a wider range of, of clinical experience associated with that. Is probably they're probably a little bit more aligned and it's easier for them to facilitate that rather than the community-based provider who has to provide clinical experience for a wider range of, of um, bases or a wider range of crews and they, they may not have that direct hospital connection. So I think you bring up the things that you have that are positive without weighing down or, or um, inferring that somebody else's model is negative, and I've probably overly reiterated that.
0: Right, and, and of course, the other thing is that there might be a, a specialty type of transport uh, that they would have uh, over a different model or even a, a competing hospital-based program. Um, such as a you know pediatric type transport, yeah.
3: and sometimes it's difficult to relative to the whole specialty model. Sometimes it's difficult for programs that are distributed out into the region to to reproduce that um, that subspecialty either based on equipment or based on expertise or based on just population served. Um, in, you know, you may not get enough flight volume out of the regionally based bread and butter scene flight um, interfacility referral cardiac patient population to support a specialty team that has nitric oxide or high frequency ventilation because there's just not enough patients in right. that region.
0: Right. Well, well, how about then from the other side? Because I know you've worked on in both uh, traditional and community based. From, a, from an independent community-based model, how would you di- differentiate yourself?
3: I think the, the independent um, community-based model has the opportunity to have... Um, they have greater reach oftentimes because they're able to have a greater number of, of bases. Um, those programs also um, oftentimes being connected with... Um, True aviation um, resources or or organizations that were um, primarily aviation resources before they became um, community um, air medical um, organizations, um, they oftentimes will have a a better back end of availability of things like backup aircraft or um, larger resources that they can share on an aggregate basis across not only a region or a state, but across the country. And they can build, you know, when they build a an Internet site or they build an Internet training site, they're not building it just for a base in one or an organization in one state that has three bases. They're building an Internet education site that will um, benefit 60 bases or benefit the community that's served by 60 bases. Right. So from a, from a capital development standpoint, Oftentimes, they may have an edge in that factor where um, you know everybody has a little bit brings a little bit different um, perspective to the table and and they also have the ability to to share standardized resources on, on a much wider level just based on, uh, on on the breadth of their organization
0: right okay let 's talk about um crew configuration and how that impacts, you know, the majority of the programs in the United States at least fly nurse paramedic, and some of those recruit paramedics from the EMS agencies in their service area. What are the benefits and risks of doing this?
3: You know, that's an interesting topic or interesting um, question because I, I think that some programs have been very, very successful at doing that, and in some ways, I think that is becoming easier in other ways, I think that's becoming more difficult um The benefit to doing that is you have people with a lot of local knowledge and and already have local connections um so there 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 are preformed relationships and there's sort of some in- inherent trust that can be built within a community within a with a lot shorter period of time um The risk to doing that is is that when that paramedic is working for their medical program, that makes them less available to work for um, the agency that they work full-time for, let's say. Or it gives them a limited availability to work for um, your organization because they have a full-time commitment someplace else. Right. Um, So you want to make sure that you're not completely depleting a resource. So if you have a very remote area that only has one or two resident paramedics, that is their whole ALS scope in that area, and you've recruited one of their people, you've recruited 50% of their staff out of there to come fly for you on on certain days of the week, that is time that is taken away from that community in being able to have an ALS resource there, which may be very key and very important in that community. So it's it's somewhat of a balance um, in that respect. Um, there are also a lot of training challenges. Um, uh, some programs that recruit um, paramedics from local EMS agencies will say that you have to come to the table or you have to come in the door already with these certifications or this level of training because for us to pay for 100 part-time employees to to repeat this training internally is not going to be cost-effective where we could have we would only be paying for 25 full-time FTEs to, to go through this training. So um, there are some challenges related to the training and, and keeping current or keeping your skill level up, especially if the level of protocols between what's being done at the EMS level and what being what is being done at the air medical program are vastly different. Mm-hmm. It may not be that they're vastly superior. It may just be that they're different patient categories or, you know, most of the time you're working in the EMS role and you're actually taking care of scene type patients or, you know, your general bread and butter type patients. And then when you go work on the air medical program, you're also responsible for a a, a wide variety of specialty care type patients, be it um, ventricular assist device or neonatal patients or patients on Unique ventilator settings. There's probably a lot of extra challenges related to some of that. Um, other training. That, so I think there's probably a balance that's involved with that. Um, the other, probably, one of the things that other that people don't necessarily think about is, um, as an as an air medical organization, you may be hiring somebody from a community that um, you think is well qualified and. Um, would be a great person to work for you on a part-time basis. And um, naturally, you're thinking one of the advent, um, advantages of doing that, it's going to establish a relationship with that community. Just because the person that you're hiring is, is well-suited for the position doesn't mean that they have the best standing in that community. So you could be hiring somebody that fits in your program well, but they may not be somebody that's really respected, in their local EMS organization or respected locally. So the fact that you've hired that person, you know, may cause, you know, some people in the in the community to go, you know, question your judgment based on their perception of that individual. So there's risk there involved as well.
0: I see. So, because um, I, I know there's even programs that will only... Higher they use a part-time medic paramedic model because you know it's obviously some benefits to to marketing and knowing each other's procedures, but I guess that really covers some of the risks of that too.
3: And and, and at times when you're when you have a full range, it's give and take on on, on whatever you're doing, but when at times when you have a, a a range of part-time staff, they do have a full-time commitment to their organization first. So right. on, on, the, on the scheduling end, it makes things more challenging and it makes covering sick calls maybe more problematic because you may have hired people from A, B, C shifts and, and you only have a, a certain bench depth um, based on the people that you have um, working for you that are working for other departments. And, and when somebody calls in that's uh, normally a C shift employee, you don't have a great number of people that you can that you can fill that position with for the for the sick call um, so that's that's a challenge as well the other thing that's becoming probably more apparent in in we've seen this in some of the um you know as the came standards evolve and as we as a community look more at fatigue and rest issues there there is a limited number of hours that the um field providers that that we hire for Um, part-time from other organizations can work because if they've come off a busy shift and they're working a metropolitan to fire department or even a rural department that's pretty busy and they've been um, out working a lot the night before, they had a big um, disaster scenario the night before, and then they're expected to come back and work um, the the next day at their medical provider, that sets up uh, a fatigue-related scenario where um, they're really not prepared to come to work. So it, it makes scheduling a little bit, probably even more problematic or difficult. Yeah. Not that it can't be done, but I think we've given a lot more consideration to um, fatigue-related scenarios and rest issues and making sure that people come to work and walk in the door while
0: rested. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and really, I think I, uh, for individuals, um, it also provides some upward mobility to work for an air medical program to, uh, you know, further develop their skills as, as a paramedic.
3: Yeah, and there, and there, just to to mention, there are interesting organizations that I've visited, you know, with in, in different formats that that I can't comment spe- specifically on. But there are organizations that are EMS organizations that have the air medical component built in. Yeah, and it's amazing to see these organizations. There's not a ton of them, but when you go and visit them. They have a true um, career ladder built in for EMS providers where you can walk in the door as not even an EMT. You can walk in the door as a, an 18-year-old vehicle support technician that takes care of ground ambulances and makes sure they're stocked and clean and ready to go, and then do in-house training all the way up through EM, EMT, through paramedic you can go into the dispatch side of the house you can go in the field supervision side of the house you can become a SWAT medic you cannot uh, there are also paramedics within the organization that have be, that stayed employed and become flight nurse nurses within that organization or become flight paramedics so those organizations that have that full vertical integration are really interesting um, because they they have a lot better retention. And they have a lot better people, a lot more people that have signed on to the mission and vision of that organization for the long term, and they're able to grow their 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 people and mentor their people into a career ladder that will serve the community and the the, the person that's actually in the EMS role for for a lifetime. Right. Whereas we see uh, we see a lot of careers are mobile now. People are moving from from job to job rather than staying with one organization.
0: That's, That's a very good point. Scott, I know on future shows you're going to talk about new developments within EMS and their effect on air medical services. But what do you think has been the biggest development in the last 10 years or even five years of that relationship between air medical services and EMS agencies?
3: I think there's been an ability to disseminate technology in a lot more rapid fashion, Um, oftentimes because the nature of Air Medical Services, we're servicing or we're providing um, care to a larger geographic area. So oftentimes we're able to embrace newer technology uh, with, uh, with a greater speed and a greater capital back end, not, not exclusively, but, um, so things like the, the easy IO, um, drill, the, the advancement in our osseous technique. Um, when, when companies look to test new biomedical equipment, sometimes they look to their medical agencies because they, they garner a bigger group of subpatient categories that, that fit that, that particular biomedical device. So um, being able to roll it out quickly and um, being able to, to test it and get feedback on that device quickly sometimes comes um, faster through partnering with air medical services or even partnering with uh, services that are not only air medical but have um, uh, multifaceted transport components. So and, and sort of the, the the downstream impact of that is these devices, as they're rolled out, maybe um, primarily or um, secondarily through air medical services, they that device gets exposure out in the community, and um, the air medical service is often able to provide some education based on that. Because I think we saw um, things like human patient simulators, um, they're, they're costly, they're coming down in, in cost, but I think you saw those more with Air medical providers, and as air medical providers started to take those devices out in the region, now we're seeing local departments that are able to develop the funding to actually get uh, a SIM man or a Medi man or, or some type of human patient simulator that they can use within their own department. Or, you know, um, they're developing um, um, uh, external or, or extra techniques. Um, for like airway visualization, like with the glidescope device or something like that, because um, they've been exposed to it through the through the air medical um, community or their medical group. the other thing that I like to the theme that I like to um impress upon people or stress is that the role in succession planning and mentorship you know I have always said mm-hmm. from an organization perspective that everybody that works from an air medical organization is a mentor. Because there are people out there that are field providers. There are people that are getting their EMT today that someday will want to be flight paramedics or someday will want to go on and be flight nurses. And not only do you mentor people within your own organization, so a chief flight nurse mentors um, their base coordinators or the chief flight nurse mentors the flight nurses or the flight paramedics, and the program administrator mentors, the clinical manager, the field personnel, the people that are on the sort of the sharp end of the stick that are out there providing the care, they have a they have a role and an opportunity to be mentors to people that want to do the job that they're doing now. And if it weren't for people that had significant guidance on my career, I would have never ended up in the air medical industry and built a career. In, in that community, and I think underselling or not recognizing the impact that our that our line service people have on mentoring people in, in EMS that want to come into uh, the critical care transport community is is something that uh, is often not recognized
0: yeah that's a very good point I've, as you know a firm believer in that too because I've been very fortunate to have uh, mentors and I've always tried to, to reach out, especially in you know my area, which is administration. Scott, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners on this particular podcast?
3: You know, nothing that I can um, think about at this particular time other than stay safe and uh, um, keep doing what you're doing, because I know that, you know, relative to listening to a lot of different podcasts on, on different types of other other types of industries and other types of businesses, I think our group of um, people that are dedicated to critical care transport are more committed to the mission and vision of what we do based on we all believe that it makes a difference. So I would say keep that up and, and keep that in the forefront of your mind because I think it motivates us to go a lot farther as a community.
0: That's a. And I've found that it's uh, just in interviewing you today and uh, the other interviews I've done, that passion comes through. You can really uh, feel that, that people are in this um, because they have that profound passion and love for for this area and they want to improve upon it. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you also for agreeing to be a regular contributor to Air Medical Today on... Uh, the EMS world. Uh, we will certainly be interested in hearing stories and information from you in the future.
3: Okay, thanks Ed.
0: You'll take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Please continue to keep the CareFlight team and family members in your thoughts and prayers as they deal with the tragic helicopter crash, along with the crews and family members of Wing Away and the O'Hara Flying Service from their respective fixed-wing crashes. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of the podcast. Stan's work can be found at RoomTuneEnterprise.com. Take care and fly safe.